Hello. First, we heard that cluster weapons had been used in residential areas of Ukraine. Now there are reports that civilians have been run over by tanks while trying to flee Russian troops in Bucha. We'll hear more from the UN Rights Office on what steps it's taking to verify those claims on a day when the General Assembly decided to suspend Russia from the Human Rights Council. The war in Ukraine has also caused a food crisis for hundreds of millions of people in the Middle East and North Africa, the UN Children's Fund tells us. And it's also issued an alert about unrelenting violence in Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo that's forced thousands of families to flee their homes. That's all coming up in this week's show with closing comments too from Solange Behetegi-Cortez. Stay tuned to hear the powerful Ukrainian war poetry that she's found. First, the news. The war in Ukraine has increased the risk of a massive malnutrition crisis for millions of children in other emergencies because of its already huge impact on global food prices, the UN said on Thursday. Also late on Thursday, the UN General Assembly voted to suspend Russia from the UN Human Rights Council over reports of gross and systematic violations and abuses of human rights by Russian troops who'd invaded Ukraine. There were 93 votes in favour, 24 against and 58 abstentions. This is only the second time a country has been suspended from the world's premier rights forum. Libya was the first in 2011. Six weeks since Russia invaded Ukraine, the UN Children's Fund UNICEF said that imports had been disrupted to the Middle East and North Africa, where more than 90% of food has to be shipped in. Prices have also risen for essentials, including wheat, cooking oil and fuel. And if the situation continues, it will severely impact children, especially in Egypt, Lebanon, Libya, Sudan, Syria and Yemen. According to UNICEF, less than 4 in 10 young children in the Middle East and North Africa get the diets they need, for growth and proper development. Meanwhile, inside Ukraine, new satellite images have confirmed that the destruction of cities besieged by Russian forces is ongoing. According to high-definition photographs produced by the UNISAT service, damage to Mariupol increased by about 6% between the 26th of March and the 3rd of April. Much of this increase was in the coastal harbour and steel mill areas, UNISAT said in its latest update. Desperately needed food aid reached Ethiopia's Tigray region for the first time in months earlier this week. It's a major development because hundreds of thousands of people are close to famine and it comes after a ceasefire was agreed in late March between federal authorities in Addis Ababa and forces loyal to Tigrayan separatists. The truce, which follows nearly 17 months of brutal conflict in northern Ethiopia, means that fuel tankers have been able to reach regional capital Mikele, the World Food Programme, or WFP, said. The UN agency tweeted that more than 47,000 litres of fuel were busy refuelling aid vehicles so that relief can reach the most vulnerable communities. The UN agency noted, however, that some 200,000 litres of fuel is needed every week to meet humanitarian needs in the region. Finally to Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo, where armed groups have continued to terrorise families, forcing thousands to flee for their lives. In an alert on Thursday, UN Children's Fund UNICEF said that conditions are dire and deteriorating at Roe refugee camp in Ichiri province, where people are effectively trapped on a remote hill. 
The camp is home to more than 60,000 people, more than half are children. Many arrived last November after being driven from another camp in the town of Drodro that was attacked by men wielding machetes. This, UNICEF explained, was just one of the latest bouts of violence that have plagued Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo for decades, displacing around 5 million people. In an appeal for help to end the insecurity, UNICEF Executive Director Catherine Russell warned that there have already been outbreaks of respiratory illnesses, diarrhoea and malaria. Every effort should be made to strengthen service delivery for people sheltering at the road camp and to protect them from violence, she said. The headlines there and now to this week's interview which takes us to the heart of what it means to be a UN human rights officer. As far as the Butcher atrocities are concerned, a huge amount of information and testimonies will be gathered, processed and stored, ultimately perhaps also sent to a court where judges will have to decide on the guilt or innocence of those individuals deemed to be responsible for their part in the killings. To tell us more, here's Liz Throssell from the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights Now. The pictures, the footage that have emerged from Butcher are truly horrific and I think have shocked so many. Indeed, the High Commissioner herself spoke about how horrifying these images were. We're talking about possible war crimes. Now, what is interesting is that the High Commissioner last week spoke about possible war crimes committed both by Russian and Ukrainian forces. Now, that was in the context of heavy bombardment of urban areas, the destruction of civilian houses, buildings, schools, hospitals. Those may be possible war crimes. But of course, these could be taking place in a military context. What we've seen in Bucha is, of course, dead bodies in the street people with their hands tied behind their back. We've seen bodies of partially clothed women that have been burned. Now, these images are so shocking and so disturbing that they do strongly suggest that um, these people, these civilians, were directly targeted and were directly killed. Now, of course, work needs to be done to establish if a specific incident was a war crime. But what is clear is that under international law, the deliberate killing of civilians is a war crime. So you have a human rights team in Ukraine, in Kiev, I understand, in the capital. What are their plans to get to Bucha to see for themselves and to start the really forensic process that's involved in, in saying whether there has been a war crime? Indeed, we have a presence in Ukraine that has in fact been there since 2014, based in the capital Kiev, but also in other locations in the country. As of now, the majority of the team are based in the far west of the country in a place called Uzhgorod. They have a team of, of some 37 human rights officers based there. Now, what colleagues are aiming to do is to get to locations like Bucha to see for themselves what may have happened. And also importantly and crucially, talk to victims and talk to witnesses. This is crucial human rights work to get first-hand information to help establish what may have happened. It's painstaking work, of course, and it is work that needs to be conducted very carefully because the cardinal principle of human rights work, of course, is to do no harm, is to avoid re-traumatizing people. And clearly they are likely to be speaking to people who have either suffered or witnessed unimaginable sites. So colleagues are looking to get there as soon as feasible. We think it is very important that information is gathered and collected as part of our overall work, monitoring and corroborating civilian casualties. But as one colleague said to me, it's not just about counting the numbers. It's not about counting figures. Every single number 
is a human being, is an individual. And it is important that what happened to them, where, how, is recorded. And this forms part of a wider effort by the UN, of course, by the international community, maybe by national courts, to pursue accountability in the courts for the perpetrators of these horrors. I suppose what you've just said there will be of some reassurance to victims' families, but horrifying for them to have to digest the fact that, as you said, the victims appeared to have been targeted by those who killed them. And this is in an area which has only only recently left by Russian forces. What do you say, though, to the Russian government official claim that this is all faked? Well, I think that the first response is the main thing here is, of course, that there's investigations into what happened. But what we've also seen, of course, is multiple media reports emerging from Bucha and other areas, with journalists cataloguing, describing what has happened. This underscores the important role that journalists play in bringing information to light. It is important that there is accountability. It's important that there are investigations and all steps need to be taken to identify the the perpetrators of these crimes. So first of all, there needs to be investigations, but also we have seen so many different images and footage emerging from places like Butcher that is so, so concerning. And as I said, the brutality of what happened to these bodies is so concerning that it really, really does raise concerns that people were targeted And as I said, under international law, the direct targeting and killing of civilians is a war crime. Thank you, Liz. Can you just explain to listeners and to me where the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights work fits into the international justice system? Of course, there are many bodies. We are the UN Human Rights Office and the work we do is varied. But a principal part of that, of course, is is the monitoring of civilian casualties. And that's important to stress. We only count those civilians who were killed in hostilities. The work that we do, the information that we gather, is part of a wider effort. Of course, as you say, there is the Human Rights Council that has recently appointed the Commission of Inquiry on Ukraine that is going to also play a very important role in gathering evidence and producing reports and pursuing accountability. We have the other courts, the International Court of Justice, and of course the International Criminal Court that has already opened investigations into possible war crimes. We have formal agreements with bodies such as as the ICC. We also work with national courts and prosecutors. So there is a well-established framework. And of course, we are ready to apply our processes should it be so required. Because however horrifying, however disturbing what is happening in Ukraine is, we have seen this kind of incident before in other parts of the world. And just to talk about the other parts of the world, Some commentators are saying that there's a growing weariness with the way that the war in Ukraine is dominating the headlines because, as you've just said, there are so many other crises elsewhere. What would you say to them? We have a worldwide mandate and the High Commissioner and her her staff monitor human rights abuses and violations around the world, speak up for victims around the world. And it is obvious and it is clear and should never be forgotten that there are crises in other parts of the world. One can think of the long-running conflict in Syria that captured the media's attention in the early 2011 to maybe 2014 and has to some degree fallen out of the headlines. I think it is part of our role and, of course, of the wider UN to make sure that such crises are not forgotten. And, of course, 
the ideal would be, first of all, that there are no such emergencies, but of course there are, we have to be realistic, we live in the real world, so that of course that the UN really strives not to just focus on one part of the world, but in to ensure that conflicts and suffering in all parts of the world are addressed. And I think the message from the Human Rights Office and from the High Commissioner is that at its very heart, at its very fundament, is respect for human rights, because without respect for human rights, conflict, violence and suffering will continue. And that may sound rather idealistic, but it is something that we continue to work for and strive for. Many thanks to Liz Throssell from the UN Human Rights Office, OHCHR, in Geneva for explaining how justice and accountability happen after the kinds of atrocities that we've been seeing in Butcher. Now, to wrap up the show, here's regular guest Solange Behetege-Cortez with some closing comments and voices from Ukraine. Hi, Sol. Hola, Daniel. The image of civilians tortured and murdered in Butcher are a terrible reminder that As Liz Trozel from the UN Human Rights Office said, we've seen these images in other parts of the world. Sad wars, sad weapons, shooting bullets, not words. Images are a language. But what happens to language in a wartime? The Ukrainian poet Anastasia Afanasieva writes in the first person plural, we. It's a way of showing us how the occupation of a country affects all citizens, no matter which language they speak. Here's one of her poems now. When a four-wheeler with a mortar passed down the street, we didn't ask who we are, whose side are you on? We fell down on the floor and lay there. Another Ukrainian author, Ludmila Hiersonska, sees her own body watching the war around her. She writes, buried in a human neck, a bullet looks like an eye, sewn in. And Katerina Kalitko from Venezia sees also war as a physical body. War often comes along and lies down between you like a child, afraid to be left alone. How to write poetry in a country on war? Poetry will certainly change after the horror. We will change. As the Nobel Prize winning poet and author of the Witness of Poetry, Zezlav Milos said, not because we witness it, but because it witnesses us. Thank you, Sol. Desperate lines there from Ukrainian poets Anastasia Afanasieva, Lyudmila Kazonska, Katerina Kalitko and Polish author Zezlav Milos. Words for War is where you can find those Ukrainian poets' work and new poems from Ukraine. And it was only printed in 2017, so it should still be in print and available. Thank you so much for listening and following the work of the UN listeners. We really do appreciate it. We'll be back next week. I hope you'll join us. Bye-bye for now. Ciao, Daniel.